You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. Hey guys, this is Sherry. And this is Adam. And you are listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Sherry, I'm really excited about this episode today. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. This is the first time we've had five experts on from really all across the United States, kind of. I want to tell you who we have today from west to east across the state of Iowa. Uh, We're joined by Natasha Keller, a licensed mental health counselor and therapist at Mercy One Siouxland Child Advocacy Center. Brianna Young, she's a licensed mental health counselor and supervisor at Mercy One Psychiatry Resident Clinic in Des Moines. We also have Deborah Georgia, a therapist who works with the Mercy One North Iowa Behavioral Services Center in Mason City. Uh, We also have John Upshaw. He's a licensed independent social worker from Mercy One Cedar Falls Behavioral Health Care. And last but not least, we have Dr. Michael Porosky, a psychiatrist at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. Uh, It's a panel discussion. Everybody's going to weigh in from all different corners of our state, and hopefully you learn something today. I want to say the the topic. We didn't even talk about our topic. Oh, my gosh, yes. Today we're going to talk about signs signs of depression. It is October. It is National Depression Month. But um, just talking about all the things that you can do to acknowledge that maybe you're you're needing some help, and uh, things we can that they can tell us what to do to help us ourselves through that. Really quick, just a question for the general group: when when we think about depression, I want to know what is the when when is depression or when is feeling a little blue? When does it rise to the need that someone might need some professional help? And and what's the difference from that and I just might be feeling a little bit down. Um, Dr. Porosky, let's start with you. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me here. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the most important things to think about when somebody comes in and says, well, I'm feeling down or I'm feeling more blue is, is first of all, trying to understand, you know, how, how is this affecting you? How has this affected you in time? You know, and one of the big things we look at is, well, what's the functional impairment? You know, there's a difference between someone saying, you know, I feel down, but I find I'm able to get through the day. And someone who's saying, you know, I'm so down that I can't be there for my children. I can't go to work. I can't feed myself or attend to my basic needs or, you know, I'm getting suicidal. And, you know, so I think the first thing is just how is this affecting them and what's the intensity of it? And then, you know, another big question I always wonder about in terms of do we need, you know, a professional to help or not is what's going on here? What's given rise to it? You know, life will come at us in in ways we don't expect and can push us in directions we wish it hadn't. And we can feel down from that. And sometimes having a professional like a therapist to help just guide you through that and and, and work your way through it can be very helpful. And and whether or not it rises to the level of severe major depression. And, um, you know, and then and then we try to you know, try to see, uh, you know, how are the symptoms going over time? Is this getting worse? Or as time's gone on, are things getting better? And I think those things help decide whether or not we need to have professional help, how long we need it, and whether or not medications or something like that makes sense. Dr. Porosky, what what are some of the signs that, you know, you see from your patients um, who are coming in with depression? Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it depends on the person and, and what in combination we're seeing. You know, I think there there are two common things that usually 
uh, we notice. One is just they're saying I'm depressed or I, I'm I'm sad on more days than not. Uh, and sometimes they, they do or don't have explanation for why that might be. And the other big one is that they're just really not enjoying things anymore. They're saying, you know, when I go and I spend time with my family, I'm I'm there, but I feel like a shell. You know, I'm going through the motions. I don't enjoy it anymore. And then, you know, with that, people can have disturbance with their sleep. You know, a lot of times I see people who are saying, well, I can't sleep or I'm sleeping all the time. And when we peel back the layers uh, of what's going on, we find out actually is there, there's a whole host of other things. And this is more depression than a primary problem with sleep. You know, people can have lots of rumination, lots of guilt or feelings of worthlessness, uh, changes in their appetite, whether they're eating a lot more than normal or a lot less. They can feel like they're they're in a fog and they can't think. I mean, I've had, you know, in the last two weeks, at least five or six people I can think of who have come in for problems with concentration. And the more we've talked, it's been more that it's not ADD, it's that you've got an evolving depression, you know, and, and uh, that can be an issue, um, you know, and, and energy level can drop. And then, you know, the other thing we look at is, is suicidal thoughts. And for some folks, that's a feeling like things would be better off if they were, were not here anymore, or that they're a burden and it'd be better off if they weren't around their family. And sometimes that's people making plans that they're going to take their own life. And usually it's some combination of those those things on more days than not that we're seeing. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, certainly the coronavirus has made people feel more down in general from what I've seen. And I, I've seen more people that stress kind of just tipping things over the edge into a, a major depression where maybe before it was just seasonal blues or something like that. I want to make sure that we get a couple of other of our uh, experts uh, chiming in here. Um, Brianna or Deborah, um, anything you'd like to add on top of, of what we've covered so far as far as um, depression in general, signs that someone might need professional help, or uh, how everything that the country has had to deal with the past several months, eight months, how that has impacted people that you see in your practices? Doug, I think uh, this is Brianna, and I think Dr. Porosky was was right on with, with what he said um, the state of the world, the state of the, the country, all of that is, has been incredibly stressful and, and life-changing for many people. And I think one of the biggest things for folks to understand is, is it's okay to ask for help um, if you start to feel or even start to question whether you, you need some help, your life has changed slightly, majorly, moderately, wherever the scale falls for you. If you feel like talking to someone might be beneficial, it's a great place to start Therapy is, is a wonderful addition to a lot of folks' lives, and therapy does not mean it's lifelong. Therapy does not mean you uh, have a major uh, mental health illness. Therapy just means that you're needing an unbiased person to present uh, different ideas and options to you, and therapists are great places to start with uh, uh, considering or bouncing the idea off of whether, whether medication could be helpful or not. But therapy by no means indicates that you need or require medication. Um, They are a great mediator between trying to do it yourself and trying to figure out if medication might be helpful. So if you need or are considering the idea that that you want somebody else to talk to, by all means, we highly encourage you to just check it out and see if that can be beneficial to your life in any way. I like what you said, Brianna, about about this because I think too often people think that they're weak if they go seek counseling. 
um, or suggestions on how to how to get out of those low moments in their life. And we all go through through things like this. And I think, you know, it's really important to express to people that are listening that everybody goes through these moments in life that can be bumps in the road and counseling can help tremendously in those ways. It's not always about medication. Sometimes it is, but there's other ways to deal with depression as well. As someone who, who kind of specializes in the medications, I would agree completely. You know, not everybody needs to be on medications. And I think any one of us providers sitting down and getting to know someone and letting them know this is what we think and something like that may or may not make sense, you know, is the way to go. And I agree, therapy can be amazingly helpful. And I just wanted to say thank you. And I agree with that. Deborah, you were going to you were going to weigh in with some thoughts a couple of minutes ago. Yeah, our presenters are right on. I I agree with so much of what they're saying. The thought that I had while I was listening was some so much in our culture sometimes is the the missiveness of of mood disorders, depression and anxiety and the and the you know, I grew up in Iowa, the pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thing that um some folks feel uh levels of shame about having to talk to somebody else and I think I think our culture, our communities, our our organizations are doing a good job of letting people know that it is a that it is a real thing that can really be treated and helped along by seeking out somebody that knows what they're doing with depression, like the doctors and the therapists. And so the other comment that I have is that I think with our focus on depression month is that I see folks in my practice who are so tired of worrying right now, especially in terms of what's happened in these last six months, that, that the fatigue um, and the weariness of, of COVID and what's going to happen to our health and all of that sort of stuff kind of feeds into this, that sense of hopelessness. And so I've seen folks who've like never felt depressed before are reaching out and their, and their family members are saying, call the hospital, call the clinic. Um, And so I, I think that this information is hopeful and helpful to folks and it has been a very difficult time. And that the weariness has really led to some depressive symptoms for folks who've likely not struggled with it before. You know, um, I'm a mom, and one of the things I always worry about was, you know, my kids and, you know, looking for signs and symptoms for kiddos and, you know, what age, I guess for John and Natasha, I know you work with kids a lot. What age or how young can you first see signs of depression to start to develop in kiddos? When I'm working with kids, I don't go to depression right away. It's kind of like I want to get to know the story developmentally and what they're experiencing. Most of the time what I'm seeing is possibly an adjustment reaction to something going on in their life, whether it's uh, family changes, a loss, abuse, and so on. I've worked with children as young as two years of age. And what I have seen is being uh, withdrawn, acting out behaviors, at school, at home, abrupt changes in behavior, crying all the time. Um, It may come out as fear uh, from triggers. So I think it really depends on the child's situation. And Natasha, any thoughts on that? Um, Yeah, so I I would agree. You know, all those things John said are definitely the the main signs and symptoms, kind of hallmark signs and symptoms that would show possible depression in children. But again, like he said, children is 
a little bit um, more difficult to diagnose at times because they are so dependent on their environment for you know, how they're feeling. And they're dependent on the adults in their environment for how they're feeling. So they, they oftentimes will just reflect things that are going on in their environment. So if there's struggles at home or struggles at school that aren't necessarily, you know, caused by anything they're experiencing, they might just reflect that in their behavior. But, you know, um, kids as young as like eight years old can be, you know, struggling with just depression that has nothing to do with really anything going on in their life. It's just, how they're feeling. It's just what they're struggling with. Um, and like John said, it can be major changes, sudden changes in their behavior. Maybe um, you notice a drop in their self-esteem, like they used to be really confident about something and, and trust their own decisions. And suddenly they, they second guess themselves or they're doubting themselves. They don't want to participate in things they used to feel confident in because they are worried they'll fail. Um, you know, acting out kids, for a lot of times, depression will look like irritability. So rather than being sad and sort of sullen all the time, they'll just kind of seem like grouchy and on edge a little bit more, maybe fight with siblings a little more, fight with parents, talk back to parents. That's a common complaint that parents have when they're bringing their kid in for services. So um, yeah, there's different things. And, you know, eating and sleeping, too, can change for kids, just like adults. They, you know, might show more nightmares or things like that. This is Brianna, and uh, I think really uh, it's important for parents to to pay attention to their, their kiddos' mental health, but more importantly, it's important to not freak out over it um, and go to the extreme um, and think that their, their child is going to be plagued with mental illness forever and get down on their parenting abilities or anything like that, it's important just to address it first off with a conversation, check in on those kids, ask them what's going on, see if you can elicit any kind of information. It might be as simple as, you know, I see you crying every night as a parent. Um, and maybe you need to have a conversation with the, the child about what's going on, or they might be excessively worried about the election season or COVID or any of the other uh, world events that we have going on and just talking with them and giving them more information, letting them ask questions, giving them an open place to discuss ideas, thoughts, feelings, uh, but importantly as well, uh, get them the additional help if it's something beyond what you feel like as a parent you could handle um, or beyond what you feel is somewhat normal uh, feelings of anxiety or, or, or feeling sad. Um, in this day and age. So don't be afraid to have those, those honest conversations with the child, but don't also don't be afraid to reach out to uh, a therapist, a doctor, a psychiatrist to ask for additional help if you feel it's out of your hands. Great. I, I want to mention really quick that as people listen, um, if there's any time that you want to find out more information about any of the experts that are on their, our panel today, um, we're going to put all their information in the episode description. We'll have links um, so you can find out more about them um, from the different areas of the state of Iowa that we have today. Um, I do want to move on to our next topic. We're going to change gears a little bit. And this relates to major depression. Um, I'm going to there are, are there, are there diagnosed different levels of depression? Uh, well, this is Dr. Prosky. Um, and yeah, to answer your question, there, there are different levels of depression. 
Um, there's specific diagnostic criteria for depression, you know, so to meet major depressive disorder, to have that, um, you have to either have depressed mood or anhedonia, that not enjoying things I mentioned before. And then usually a five out of nine of other symptoms. And, you know, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe depends on the number of the other symptoms. There are, there are nine symptoms of depression, uh, the intensity of those symptoms and the frequency of them. And then, you know, also you can sometimes have depression where people have hallucinations or paranoia. And so that's a kind of a depression with psychotic features. So that happens as well. So, um, yeah, that's kind of, so the different levels depend on kind of what you're seeing and how severe it is. I want to start to talk about the different modalities that are available that, that can address some of these things. Um, Brianna and, and Dr. Porosky, both, I think you're familiar with, uh, I want to make sure I say it correctly, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So, um, Brianna, why don't we start with you? Can you describe what that is? how it works and how it can help people with severe depression. Yeah, transcranial magnetic stimulation, otherwise known as TMS, is uh, alternative treatment um, that is FDA approved, non-invasive, um, to treat major depressive disorder, typically in the severe form. And that has to do with, typically we, we identify treatment resistant depression which also indicates um, failure of multiple medications, whether that's through bad side effects or just not obtaining any kind of positive results at a therapeutic dose. And so TMS is something that we like to review as an alternative to continuing to trial multiple, multiple meds. Oftentimes, by the time you're ready to attempt TMS, you've already trialed many of them. Um, with TMS, it's a daily procedure that has a coil um, placed on your head. It doesn't typically hurt. A lot of people just feel a little bit of a, a woodpecker sensation, um, and it clicks very similar to maybe how you'd imagine an MRI machine clicks, and it works on stimulating the brain cells. It helps to increase those positive feelings from a biological perspective. What we found, and through research, um, greater than uh, outside of the scope of, of the Mercy One system, is 70% of people that engage in TMS treatment find some kind of benefit to it. They, they report improved symptoms in one shape or form. And then greater than 30% of folks actually report um, remission of their depressive symptoms. And that remission often lasts uh, many years following stopping that treatment. And so it's a really, really neat alternative to continuing to try and um, go through the, the changes of meds, the, the side effects, the symptoms. Um, often with TMS, one of the, the biggest side effect of it is within the first week, there might be a slight headache. Um, otherwise, it, it, that can be treated with, with over-the-counter medications and typically uh, is no longer an issue after the first week of treatment. So it's a great, great opportunity. It's, it's different. It provides a lot of um, exciting results and exciting opportunities for people who struggle with that daily depression that uh, just kind of impedes life so much. Dr. Porosky, do you have anything a little bit more technical maybe or, or even additional information that maybe I didn't hit on there? Oh, sure. Happy happy to 
to talk about it. And so we, we do TMS here as well, and, and I would echo what you said. I mean, we've seen great results with it. Um, in terms of what it does in the brain, um, depression is a complex circuit in the brain that really goes from the top front of our brain, kind of through the middle and down to some core, kind of more primitive parts of the brain. And and it's a whole body condition. It, you know, the brain talks to the body below it, and so we have sometimes physical symptoms that are driven by that. So reason I'm saying that is that TMS intervenes on a specific part of that circuit. Uh, on uh, In most people, uh, it's on the left side of their body, and it's a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And what we know is that part of the brain is, is a big part of the depression circuit, and in many folks with depression, it's underactive. And so the idea with TMS is that by stimulating that part of the brain every day, hopefully we wake it up. And, and I tell people often, you know, brains are like slinkies, you know, we stretch them out with the things we do and hopefully over time the slinky stays, you know, like when you stretch one of those old metal slinkies and it gets stuck. And so the daily treatments with TMS, they wake up that part of the brain and we hope that as we wake it up every single day, eventually it sticks. Um, the only other thing I would add, you know, unless you want to know more about the, the technical side of it is, um, you know, TMS, there are a number of different machines that are used for it, and there are some different protocols for depression. So um, we here uh, in Dubuque, we have a machine that we have three protocols for depression, and, and the treatment outcomes are the same in terms of what the data shows, but we have one that you can do the whole treatment in three minutes. And so one of the barriers to this care can sometimes be, you know, if someone's working or they have, you know, children at home or they're busy for whatever reason, you know, some, sometimes you have to have a treatment for 30 minutes a day. So they, they've managed now with advanced technology to shrink down, you know, the time into three minutes. And so it's a way of people getting a needed treatment that's an alternative to medications, but they don't have to upend their life every day necessarily to get it. That's really interesting. Um, and I know we, we could probably talk up just a dedicated episode just about this kind of technology and its impacts um, on on behaviors, but um, in the interest of time, I, I do think we got to move on. I do want to mention though. Um, so you guys were talking about TMS. That's a drug free treatment for um, the severe depression. There are also medications for for severe depression. I know. Um, so Sherry and I here in in the Northeast Iowa region, Waterloo, there's a, a nasal spray that they used called Spravato that that has been in use for the last year. Um, really quickly, and maybe this is best for Dr. Porosky, when we look at a drug-free treatment versus a drug that's a nasal spray, why would one person go one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think that the decision, when, when someone is, is treatment-resistant, you know, they failed multiple medications, they're doing psychotherapy, and, you know, standard things aren't working. Um, the specific decision of what do you pick for somebody and what, what do they want to do, which is critically important, um, really comes down to the individual and, and what they've been through. So, you know, we're, we're uh, learning about Sprofato, we're exploring it, but we, we don't do it here. Um, but I can talk about it just a bird's eye view and, and how one might arrive at a decision to do that compared to TMS. I mean, part of it is um, the commitment of how much time do you have. So Sprofato is something that is a couple of times a week. TMS is every day. Um, Part of it might have to do with any medical risks you have. I mean, TMS, 
you know, it's a magnet, so we have to be careful with certain kinds of metal in the body or like pacemakers or aneurysm clips and stuff like a cochlear implant, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, for somebody who has a, you know, heart disease or stroke history or history of substance abuse, I'm not really worried too much about TMS being a safety risk. Um, you know, when we give ketamine or S, I mean, Spravato is a S ketamine, which is sort of a variation on ketamine that's used for anesthesia. You know, there can be changes in heart rate and blood pressure during it. Uh, it is, you know, Spravato is, um, you know, not, not something you can just go and, and pick up somewhere. It has to be given in a controlled setting, but ketamine itself is a, a, a drug of abuse. And so, you know, we want to be cautious if somebody has a severe substance use history with using that as well. Um, you know, and, and, and there are other factors. I don't want to take up too much time with it, but a lot of the factors like that come into play with someone. And so first question is, is this an appropriate treatment to recommend for this specific individual in my office? And I really, really think treatment resistant depression treatment has to be individualized. And, and then the second question is, okay, if it's a reasonable recommendation for them, how do they feel about the commitment they have to put in and the risks and benefits of it? And then the other would be kind of, which is, which do we think is most evidence-based for them? And so when you put all that together, usually you can come up with a systematic way of approaching it. So trying to kind of changing gears here again, um, you guys mentioned, you know, one of the best things that you do first is have patients come in and talk to you, find out what was, you know, what, how their adjustment reaction is or what's changed in their life to create some of these feelings. And, you know, back in the day, it was all one-on-one in the office and, you know, I believe you guys know this COVID's really pushed the button on telehealth. And I know Deborah, you've been doing it for the last five years, virtual a hundred percent. So I'd like to hear your guys's feedback, Deborah, John, I know you've been doing it. Natasha, you've been doing it on how is that going? And are you seeing real great success in talking to your patients via telehealth? If someone's afraid to come in? Well, this is Deborah, And yes, I have been doing it. Um, uh, full-time uh, for the last uh, well, nearly five years. An interesting experiment for everybody, really, when it started. And I first started doing it from home and patients came into the hospital. And so people got used to it a little bit there. And then with COVID, have had treating people in their homes um, with some of what mandates have happened so that we could provide those services in in the home. I think it's been very interesting to watch clinicians kind of pay attention to, is it going to be effective when people don't come into the building, when I'm not in the building, when I'm not in the room? <clears throat> and my experience through the years of doing that is that it's like Dr. Prosky said, that there's an individual individual needs being met. I have had some patients who have been, who have said they couldn't have talked to me about some of the things that they have shared with me if I had been in the room and that uh, that it felt safer on some level. Um, I've had recently through COVID older folks who um, probably would have never come to therapy but were very fearful during COVID who made calls to the hospital and we set them up through Zoom and who had really positive experiences and feel sort of happy to tell their grandchildren that they're talking to somebody on the on their phone and they just, you know, they, they engage pretty easily. And so um, I have not found uh, in the years doing it many alarms or barriers that I feel that, that the video um, 
impacted um, more than more often than not for my population, which tends to be adults, it has felt safer for them to be able to talk. Um, you know, one of the barriers certainly is phones dropping, videos kicking out, internet connections, all of those kinds of things. And so one of the things that part of the protocol always is to establish phone numbers, to establish backup plans, like at the video drops, how do we continue the session, all of those kinds of things. But um, I, I have found it to be effective and safe for patients. Um, I've had a couple of patients where um, I didn't think that that was probably the safest. And even through COVID, we were able to get people in for face-to-face -face, um, with all the PPE protections and those kinds of things. So um, um, I'm finding it very effective. John, I was told that you've really embraced telehealth in your practice. What, what are some of the successes that you've seen? Being a play therapist, um, I've engaged in utilizing music and videos uh, throughout my career. So um, when this happened, a lot of the teenagers were very much isolated at home, um, especially when school was cut out, they couldn't see their friends and such. And my ability to like screen share and share videos and have them share videos with me about how they're feeling, what they're experiencing is another level of, of sharing. Otherwise, you know, th they wouldn't be able to come to their office come to the office and, and express that. So in some ways it's been an anchor. And for the play therapy, I've been fortunate, fortunate enough to be connected with other play therapists uh, and sharing experiences. So like when I'm doing play therapy, I'll like zoom in and like I'm on a phone and I feel like I'm another toy that they have in their toy box and they have their toys set up and I still get to participate in that play interaction as if I was there and now I'm a part of that because I'm on a phone or I'm on an iPad. So it allows me to stay connected uh, when a lot of children who were not going to school were becoming disconnected. And I think that connection was uh, very critical. Deborah, I want to go back to you just for a second. I, as I, as John was speaking, I was thinking back to, gosh, what was it? <laughs> it was something that you said that I really keyed in on, and John reminded me of it. But it, I did want to point out, um, I know Sherry mentioned that you've been doing 100% virtual, and you talked about it for the last few years. I don't know that we specifically said that you are seeing patients from Iowa, but you're actually in a completely different state. You're, you're calling us today, and you see patients from Florida. Uh, correct. Correct. I, um, when I was going to leave Iowa and move to Florida uh, and say goodbye to Mercy One in North Iowa, they said, hey, would you take a laptop with? And there's some projects. And then there was a pilot program where they were having family practice docs. When people came in and they were struggling with depression or anxiety, they would call me quick and they would take a laptop in and I would help the doc do an assessment in real time with a patient in the room who maybe came in for a headache, but then uh, was presenting depressive symptoms. And so we began in that pilot project and then continued to um, find different ways that video conferencing telehealth was going to help 
provide the needs to the folks in in our area. We had staff leave and then we were down on staff. And so um, I was able to continue to be employed and uh, provide services to patients that I had seen. I'd been in Mason City for 20 years when I left. So continuity of care happened. Um, and I have learned a lot about technology and I, I mean, I could, I have a lot more words about technology than I ever knew before, but, um, but yes, yeah, so did it in the hospital. We're also expanding to have telehealth services in major manufacturing areas in North Iowa. So folks who are struggling on the job, especially now with COVID, there's been an increase, but folks who were struggling on the job just could walk to their clinic that was on site in a manufacturing area, set up an appointment and I can do it. They don't have to take as much time off work. So there's been lots of exciting things, I think, with the expansion of video conferencing, telehealth, telemedicine. There's many words that refer to it, but being able to provide services uh, to meet the needs of our patients um, in rural health, you know, in our rural areas. Uh, we've also been able to help people get services and they don't have to drive for an hour or during snowstorms. Some of the docs in the family practice clinics are doing those virtual visits. And so I just think it's an exciting addition to healthcare all around. Absolutely. The power of technology has been great during this time, just keeping us connected to our patients and their care. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I know we we talk about innovate as as one of the big things that we like to really focus on at, at Mercy One, and so that when when you talk about having to learn technology and and having to really fast track um, working with this type of stuff when it it's basically mm-hmm. get on the bus or yeah. it's going to leave you. Yep. That that's what innovate really looks like, um, Natasha. Um, you've used telehealth at your practice um, up in Sioux, Sioux City area. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we've, um, I haven't had the chance to use it as much, certainly not as much as Deborah. Um, and like John said, when he's working with kids, you know, it is kind of, um, it's kind of a fun new tool, honestly, as a therapist working with children because. Um, they get to show you things that they wouldn't normally get to show you, and you get to sort of be a part of their environment in a way that you wouldn't normally when they're coming into the office for therapy. You know, I don't normally get to see the kids play in their own room, um, and so that's an interesting and kind of a fun tool just to see how they interact in a different setting, um, and, you know, there might be family members that they want to introduce me to at the beginning of session or pets oftentimes, which is pretty adorable. So um, it's honestly been a welcome tool, um, especially during COVID when families are just fearful about going out in general, but a kiddo needs services, you know, Um, and I I specialize in treating trauma. So trauma is a pretty time sensitive mental health issue that it should be addressed as soon as possible after whatever incident has happened to the kiddo. So um, it's been very welcome to make sure that kids can get services. And, you know, we, there's technology struggles at times, you know, um, little kids, maybe they're on a laptop or something, and then like a dialogue box pops up or something. And, you know, especially if they're uh, pre-reading age, that can be tough. So we always have to make sure that there's an adult available, you know, not within the room, not necessarily within listening distance, but that an adult is at home and the child can go get the adult if they need assistance like that. But otherwise, it's been working out pretty well. 
So I'm going to try to shift gears again. I, I often try to think like a podcast listener as I'm listening to you, uh, as, I, as we listen to our speakers talk. And I'm just wondering, with everything we've talked about today on treatments and, and things that you, know, you do as a therapist or a physician for your, your patients coming in, um, I'm sure some of our podcast listeners are out there saying to themselves, okay, I'm not quite ready to go seek a counselor or a therapist or see a physician because I'm kind of doing okay, but some days are worse than others. What are some suggested key things that they could do for themselves outside of coming in to speak to a counselor um, or a physician? Uh, what, what are some things that you recommend to do to lift their, their um, moods up um, and, and feel better that they could do for themselves in self-care? This is Deborah. I think that one of the very first things that I would I would want our listeners to to pay attention to is is to uh, decrease their fears about sharing that they are feeling something different, kind of down, kind of weary. To, to be able to reach reach out to a family member or a friend or somebody and just kind of you know sometimes I call it going fishing, right? To, to just to kind of drop a line and kind of say, you know, have you felt this a little bit? I've been kind of feeling this a little bit. Um, and to remind themselves that having emotional responses to, to situations like what we've all been in um, is normal, natural, expected. And so it's how it, when you're weary about something, when you're, when you're tired of it, when you're fearful of it, all of those emotions are appropriate because you're having them. And so then it's important to kind of share them where you can, um, you know, and it might be, it might be with a pastor, it might be with your neighbor or somewhere, but to just to kind of just begin to even talk about them um, so that you can get some validation and, and those kinds of things. And, and the other thing that I think about is to kind of remember, um, you know, whatever sort of faith practice you may have is to kind of reach out for some support and some soothing and, and find those things that, that help soothe you when you're distressed and help, help distract you a little bit. And, and again, a lot of those things of, of, you know, shopping therapy, that sure got taken away from us. Right. And so (laughs) some things that we usually did um, now we can't do, but to kind of find different ways that you can distract yourself from this heavy, weary time that we're in and to soothe. Um, But my, but really the first comment that I made just to be able to reach out a little bit and just begin to say, man, this is a tough time. I think that that's a really important um, thing to do during these times. Brianna, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I think everybody's been, been right on with, with everything we've said today, you know, with regards to uh, identifying just mental health in your own life, if you're not quite ready to, to reach out or to get additional help, uh, self-awareness is a big key and self-awareness through discussion with others, like um, my panelists have been saying with us, and but also recognizing, if you can, your own triggers. Um, turning on the television right now can trigger so many people for, for various reasons. If you find yourself being irritable, after watching a newscast or television for any reason, shut that off. You know, make sure that you're taking care of yourself first. Don't overwhelm yourself with the news and the media. And we're bombarded constantly with social media posts, television, news, newspapers, magazines, Twitter, Instagram, all of that stuff. And if you need to take a break 
from the news. If you need to take a break from the bombardment of everything coming at you and making you feel insecure, inadequate, uncomfortable, depressed, sad, mad, anxious, whatever it might be, take a break. Um, there, the news is going to be there. If you can control that um, setting by, by going directly to a specific news source that you would like to, looking directly at certain articles rather than just constantly scrolling and hearing um, the different perspectives of who's doing what right now and who's right and who's wrong. All of those can create a, a various emotional disturbance in anyone. And so recognizing what's triggering you and being able to try and take control back and give yourself that control you need in order to get through your day more successfully can really work miracles for a lot of folks too. Dr. Porosky, we haven't heard from you for a few minutes. I want to make sure that we give you a chance to, to wrap up. Any final thoughts you'd like to toss in here? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate what everyone else is saying, so I, I agree with that. There are a couple things, you know, I, I would add to. I mean, uh, one is, is, you know, if you're finding yourself feeling down or you're finding yourself feeling overwhelmed, try to uh, stay active, you know, uh, so kind of regular exercise, even if it's 15 minutes sitting in a chair, curling soup cans quickly, you know, if that's what we can do in the winter weather and, you know, that that's shown to help with mild depression and to pick up our spirits, uh, a little bit of exercise. Um, I'll often recommend to people who can't come in or who, you know, stop me in the store, in the grocery store and ask, Hey, I'm feeling a bit down. What do you think I should do? You know, if, if I don't want to see somebody right now, you know, um, going online and just Googling, you know, guided imagery or meditation and looking for a couple of exercises, you know, they can even be five or 10 minutes to just help ground you. And then I agree completely with reaching out to family and letting them know you're struggling. And I, I would add one thing, which is that sometimes in life we feel like we're in a boat with holes in it with a bucket trying to shovel out the water. And, and sometimes we can do that alone and sometimes we can't. So I think the other thing is letting your family know if you need help, if they need to lift some of the load off your shoulders so that you can weather the storm of what's going on and saying to them, you know, uh, right now I need a little bit of help with the things that are going on here because I really feel myself sliding. It takes a lot of courage to do that, but, but often doing it can be the reliever that helps you be able to make it through something really tough. That's, that's great. And that's great. And I wanted to ask John, because John, I, I, I see you with your patients sometimes in our wellness center. I wanted to get your thoughts on um, staying active, refocusing on a different, you know, I, I don't want to mess up what you actually do because it's kind of like Tai Chi, but what actually do, do, you, do you do with your patients in those activity settings? Yes, I wanted to uh, go along with what Dr. Prosky uh, was saying. I've been involved in the study with the University of Northern Iowa looking at the effects of uh, Tai Chi and therapeutic uh, yoga with survivors of PTSD. And uh, what we have found is a decrease of depression, decrease in anxiety, and decrease in uh, PTSD symptomatology. And for me, when I'm, I practice a very traditional style of Tai Chi, I've been doing group therapy with it for the past eight years. And when I take a look at people who have experienced depression and trauma, there's a disconnect with their sensory uh, systems of, of sight, of sound, of touch. And for me, when I'm doing Tai Chi, it's reconnecting them with their body. It's 
becoming aware. So when you take a look at what mindfulness is, mindfulness is the activation of your sensory system into the here and now. So when I'm doing Tai Chi and, and teaching my patients Tai Chi and going through the movements, they're reconnecting to their body, but they're also reconnecting to what's going on in, the, in that moment. There's a, a, a reawakening that occurs. And um, plus all the other benefits of what exercise can do for you. Natasha, let's, uh, let's throw it over to you in, in Sioux land. Any final thoughts? We just got a few minutes left here. Everybody has contributed so many great thoughts already. I don't think there's much left for me to say. I agree completely with, you know, that physical activity can be, even if you're not struggling with mental illness, maybe you think you're relatively fine. I mean, it can only make you feel better. Um, And for those people who are struggling, like Dr. Prosky said, even a few minutes of physical activity, um, fresh air, you know, and, and daylight, I always think, you, it's good to see the sun at least once a day. That's just sort of a natural, um, natural boost for your mood. So little things like that go a long way. Okay. Well, I want to thank everybody today for taking the time out of your day to participate in our panel. This is the first time we've ever done anything. This is great. Like. It was awesome. I, I've always wanted to have somebody from all over the 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 large network of, of colleagues that we have here at Mercy One and, and what a great way to get everybody involved. It was great. And I mean, I think, you know, we all know that we should all reach out for help, but to just hear the acknowledgement from these experts to say, it's okay to say once in a while in life, it's tough. And we all need to remember to acknowledge that with ourselves because everybody needs help once in a while. And Um, now we can do it through telehealth and we can do it through all these other great ways that they've talked about today. So, I mean, it's just a good reminder for everybody listening out there that there's people to help you. You don't have to do this alone. And if you are listening and would like any information about any of our providers, again, we'll put that information and links in our episode description. Want to say thank you to Natasha Keller, Brianna Young, Deborah Georgia, John Upshot, and Dr. Porosky. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. All right, podcasters, you know, we love to hear your feedback. So make sure you're sending feedback to podcast at mercyhealth.com or fill out the submission form on mercyone.org slash podcast. And don't forget, we have all those other episodes you can still listen to on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. So they're out there for you. Just search for Mercy One. You should be able to find it. Yep. And as always, guys, live your best life.